Full Credit to the Boys is a podcast by Cheek Media Co., which discusses topics including mental health, masculinity, sexuality, healthy relationships, sexual violence, First Nations issues, and other vital social and political conversations. Some content may be triggering for some listeners. In this episode, I'm interviewing Joe Williams. Joe was a Wiradjuri, Wagalu First Nations man. He played rugby league for the South Sydney Rabbitohs, the Penrith Panthers, and the Canterbury Bulldogs before moving to professional boxing in 2009, where he was twice named the World Boxing Foundation's welterweight champion. Joe has battled suicidal ideation and bipolar disorder. He's now a mental health advocate running workshops and giving talks through his organisation, The Enemy Within. This is Full Credit to the Boys. start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that we're on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Um, I want to acknowledge their elders past and present, and this was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now, I'm very pleased to announce that I'm here with Joe Williams. Um, there'll be a little spiel before the podcast begins about who Joe is, but Joe, thanks for coming. Thanks for sitting down with me. Um, how would you describe yourself? Tell me a bit about your resume, which is extensive. Uh, they're just words. You know, sometimes I get a little bit uncomfortable when people read out your bio you know um because a lot of that was without doubt is who i am but it was also who i was rather than who i am absolutely so um the sportsman all of that sort of stuff is very much a what i did it's funny you know i um i always tell people that i i played sport to pay the bills uh, what I do now is is the most important thing, th- and things that I that I can do and and will do. Um, you know what? I'm I'm someone who's continually learning about myself. Uh, and you know, with that being said, as a First Nation man, like I'm I'm a Wiradjuri Wogaloo man. Always, forever, I I knew that I was a, a Wiradjuri man, but I didn't understand that we're Wogaloo as well. Wogaloo is a tiny little nation in the snowy mountains um a little a little um a little mission called brungle uh between gundagai and tuman uh where where my where my old man was born and our original the original williams family line that i come off is from that place um you know so when we talk about traditional owner families and stuff and, and things like that you know my family was However long it dates back, um, one of the original families that were there, you know, in the in the snowy mountains, and 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 it was it's it's beautiful, beautiful country, you know, and 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 I always thought that that was Radri country still, but sitting and listening and learning, and and that's where I go back to, you know, who I am now. I'm someone who's continually learning about who I am. I think when we say that who we are, it probably gives off a vibe that we're stagnant rather than we're continuously learning about who I am. So um, I'm a Radri Wogaloo man who played sport for a big chunk of my life and then uh, doing some really what others would describe and I think what, what, what I describe is a little bit different but what others would describe is some really important work in the wellbeing space. Um, but what I would describe as just someone who likes to help people. Whatever it is, whatever it comes about, um, us as First Nations, we come from 
thousands of years of being collectivist people where we put others before ourselves always. We probably lost our way a little bit with that because of some impacts that have happened to us in the last couple of hundred years. But um, I'd like to think that at the depth of it, of who we are, we're always people who think before others, think, think about others before ourselves. Before the podcast started recording, one of the things you said to me was that like trauma is your vibe and that you want to help people understand why they are the way they are. And I think that when you're talking about, you know, First Nations people, especially prioritizing others before themselves, what are we missing there? You know, when we don't prioritize ourselves and understanding ourselves, what, what do we need to learn in the trauma space? Oh, I believe in this country, we're only, we're only scratching the surface. We probably haven't even started scratching the surface of what it is and, 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 and just the depth of it, you know, like I always talk about buzzwords and, and depression and anxiety were a buzzword for a long time with people because, you know, when I started in this space, nobody, nobody spoke about it. And then even then I thought that, you know, this, this, this big depression and anxiety and mental illness type conversation wasn't a loud conversation. And I'm, and I'm, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm, 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 I'm all for it being a loud conversation and all for it being a, an honest and open conversation about challenges that we have and who we are and why we have them. But I don't think people understand to the depth of why we have them. Um, and then we, you know, we go from, from the, the, the mental health space of anxiety and depression and different mental illnesses or, or, you know, whether it be mood disorders or, you know, diagnosed, um, you know, challenges that we go through with our well-being. Uh, then, you know, the buzzwords, people don't understand those and start to use them like they're buzzwords rather than just understanding what it is, if you get me. And then, and then this trauma conversation comes about. And then, you know, conversations that I have all the time, you know, we're just throwing these things out like, you know, uh, I need to heal from my trauma and, and we've got generational trauma and, and which we do. And I'm not, I'm not trying to silence that at all. But what I'm saying is I think we've got to spend some time in trying to sit with it and understand what it is. Because, because there's so many of us that are using these labels as buzzwords without understanding the power of what they hold. And when we talk about, you know, we, we're on a journey of healing trauma, but we're going and getting on the piss every weekend. That's not healing trauma. That's disassociating, running away from and hiding trauma. So the conversations around that, um, so I don't, I don't talk about, you know, whilst I am a mental health advocate and, and someone who works in the trauma recovery space, I don't, I don't use those buzzwords a hell of a lot. I, I just, I'm someone who likes to help people and help people understand who and why they are the way they are. Because every single one of us, every single one of us, all of our, all of our thought process, the response that we have, the first response that we have in our mind, that little voice that's even talking to you now, all of that is formed in the very early years of our lives. And we think, and, I, and, and again, like I ain't sitting here on a, on a soapbox trying to tell everyone about it and you know, from, a, from a dictator perspective, because I'm someone who's, who's learning about all of these things 
still and two and the and the more the more depth we get into it and the more we understand it the more it makes sense of who we are and why we are so for me um helping people to understand not just who they are but why they are is my vibe what i like to do um it's the aha moments that that people have to help them go wow that's that's why i struggle in relationships wow that's why I, I have challenges and i'm triggered by things that my daughters say to me or my sons say to me on the truth that they call me out because i'm busy too busy projecting and telling everyone it's not my fault and you know because and and all of that response is coming from a different place as well so um when you start to understand the mind, the capacity that it has, and why we do what we do, you see the world through a very different lens. When we talk about trauma and how it sort of starts the very small person, basically from birth, like what are we getting wrong with children, especially in the trauma space? How should we be having these conversations about what healthy relationships look like and what feelings are and and what do you think is missing in the way that we talk to young people about mental health there's so much in just what you said there's probably about five different topics in what you <laughs> said there, right um but but it's important right is because we say that you know w what are we missing you know i i, I delivered a i delivered a uh, a session uh probably 18 months ago now and they they said to me joe if you had an endless supply of money and you could put it all towards the prevention of suicide or well-being or whatever you do or how do we stop this thing you know if we had an endless supply of money what would you do i said i'd fund mums and dads to stay home with their kids right and this is the this is the challenge that we're having is that we're creating an ongoing traumatic cycle in the way we parent our kids because the way life is how fast life is but also the need to always have the best things, the need to have money coming in our door because of the, the cost of living, you know, the, face, the fast paced world of what we got. Like we, we can't keep up with it. And then we've got to go out and get this job that, you know, we're, this, is, this, is the, this is the everyday person, right? And this isn't everyone, so don't get, you know, challenged <laughs> by these comments, um, but, you think about it we 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 wake up in the morning and we get our kids ready for school and we go to work right but sometimes we're dropping kids at before school care before we go to work and if we're working the average hours of nine to five kids are at school at 8 30 or if they're at before school care at from seven o'clock in the morning we're dropping kids off babies off who are insecure with the world we're dropping kids off to strangers that they have no attachment to and then that kid grows up with those strangers every day and then they go into a school system where they're taught how to live and how to say it and what to do and how to how to how to speak and how to write and everything by strangers right and, and, you know, the, the primary school setting is, is probably a little bit better because they've got consistency with one teacher for, for, the, for the one year. But, right, we're sending, we're sending kids 
into 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 preschool when they're there's some kids are in preschool before they can even speak before they know what you know what's going on you know so um and there's no attachment there there's no primary attachment with mum and there's no primary attachment with dad and this is where i say that first nations had it all sorted is you you know the the saying it takes a village to raise a child right is that we had a village you know, we didn't have one mum or one dad. And, 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 and I also acknowledge that that's not the reality for a hell of a lot of people too. We don't have one mum and one, like two, a mum and a dad. We, we may only have a mum at home. Mm-hmm. We may only have a dad at home, you know? So we had, for thousands of years, we had multiple mums and multiple dads that saw no, no, cho- no child left behind, that, that kids were in a safe and secure environment around building and developing attachment. And then you fast forward that to 14, 15 year olds, to then adults. We've got young babies who struggle with attachment, can't form a secure attachment with their, with their, with their caregivers. And then that plays out in their relationships later in life, right? You've heard the term of that guy's got mummy problems and that girl's got daddy problems, you know, like the classics. Yeah. Like that's all because they don't have secure attachment from the early years of their life. So when I was asked that question, what would you do, Joe? I I would fund mums and dads to stay home with their kids because all of, I would, I would suggest that so many of our problems relationship problems, problems around alcohol, problems around relationships, how we treat people, how we disrespect people, is due to the lack of secure attachment in the early years of our lives. So I don't see governments or education systems saying, all right, you don't have to go to school now until you're 10. Right, think about animals, okay? A, a kangaroo. When, when does a baby joey get out of the kangaroo's pouch? I have no idea. When it's too big to fit in <laughs> Right? You don't push it off to go and be with everyone else. It gets out of the pouch when it's too big to fit. Right? This is the challenge with our kids is that is that we're all we're all big kangaroos and just pushing our babies out of the pouch way too early than the human developmental process has been for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. We're living in a fast paced world where we don't fit because everything is just going so chaotically fast that we sit back then and go, Why are our kids like that? Why, why, why is the why is the why is society's screaming challenges with anxiety out of control? It's because our kids from a very young age are the baby kangaroos getting shoved out of the pouch. 
little bit deep to think about that sort of thing. But I don't, think we, I don't think we think about it like that. I think we think about it at like developmental stages and whether they're hitting the mark and what age they're walking at and all those sorts of things. That's and the thing. We like, have these measures that don't make any sense. Well, it's not even the measures. It's, it's a race. Yeah. My kid walked at 10 months. That means my kid's going to be an incredible athlete. No, it don't. <laughs> it don't mean that. You know, like developmentally where the brain is at is very different for each child. So we, we really have to take this race of what the world is away from how we parent our kids. If your kid can't read as good as the next kid, doesn't mean that he's not going to be good at what he does when he gets older. It also doesn't mean that he's going to be not going to be an NRL star or a politician, whoever would want to do that. But, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like we, we have these, these places, massive expectations on kids and tests, right? I was in, I was in, um, on, in uh, some of the Northern parts of the country, uh, in remote Northern territory. And these kids up there, there are, there are kids that I, that I had interactions with up there that, that spoke four and five different languages before they went to school. And then they're measured in their ability then to learn to read Then they're measured in their English. ability to learn, read, understand English. And they're based as less than, and they're judged as low numerous in literacy because something that is completely foreign to them in some communities that have only been, that only saw the first white man a hundred years ago, two generations ago. They're judged in this whole new way of world. And then we go, what's wrong with those kids? Oh, those poor little dark kids. They just can't read and write. We didn't need to read and write. For thousands of years, there was no books. Test some white politician on their go and test ability to read in a fifth language. Oh, <laughs> yeah. How many, how many, how many, how many people that, that form policies down there have the ability to speak four and five different languages before they even go to school? How many of them have the ability to speak four and five different languages now as an adult? You know, it's just, in a word, with that stuff, with the judgment around First Nations and, and young people around numeracy and literacy based on English is white supremacy. The supreme belief that one language is better than the next, you know, and there's, 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 um, you know, fantastic things being, being hap happening now in, in, in some of the communities I've been to over a number of years where they have, you know, two way learning. And I spoke to uh, a brilliant, brilliant uh, principal um, from a, from a, uh, an Alice Springs school recently. And he said, if we don't have two way learning, we don't have any learning. We have to have two way learning. We have to have the local language that's always been there. And then, and then we have English as well. And if it's not two ways, if you can't value the local language like you value the English language, then you don't have any. Because if you're putting so much time and resources into just learning the English, then the kids are going to fall behind mm. because they don't understand it because it's going too fast for them, you know? So we could talk for days about this sort of stuff and 
I mean, actually, it kind of reminded me of, I think you were on Q&A, was it in August? And the, the clipping that's been everywhere is you were asked, like, is sport or the NRL inherently racist? And you basically came back and said, well, Australia is inherently racist. Mm. It's not just an issue. It's a byproduct, right? It's a symptom of the cause. So I think, I mean, from my perspective, it's that we, white people have no ability to perceive just how racist we are, right? Um, how do we go about, like, what are the steps to resolving this in the first instance? What What are we supposed to do? Like, not asking you to give me the answers because that's bullshit as well, right? Not at all. No, I don't. But it's like, it's like, it's awful to ask the question of you as well. Like, but how do we fucking fix this? Especially, and is the first place places like the NRL or is it not? It's listening to that little voice in your head. When you see a report come on the news when it says a little Aboriginal kid did X, Y, Z and listen to that little voice in your head and go, is it judging or is it showing empathy to why that little kid is doing what they're doing? And the, I guess the, uh, the catch cry of, of my organization is don't look at what, look at why. Don't look at what's going on with people. Let's look at why it's going on. You know, I've, I've been in, I've been in, juvenile detention centers all over the world, not, not just here in Australia. And, and the young people that I speak to, and it's, it's well noted within the incarceration system, people form these behaviors out of a, out of a, a need for survival. And young people are doing, getting themselves into trouble out of a, out of a place of survival because I don't know where the next feed's coming from. You know, and, and, and then all of that, where does that come from? You know, that comes from the challenges around alcohol, the conversation around alcohol and drugs in this, in this country, which is broadcasted on every TV station and normalized around, you know, our drinking habits as a country. Yet, just because it doesn't impact you in a negative way doesn't mean it doesn't impact someone else in a negative way, you know. So where we are, where we are as a country, I think let's not forget this country is only of what we know it now as Australia is only two hundred year old, two hundred thirty odd years old. And you and you something you went back on earlier is Australia inherently racist. Australia was born on racism. That's that's what it was born on. And people of color have been fighting for food scraps ever since. There was a great conversation with the, with the local mayor at Wagga at the time. Um, when we had, in 2019, we had a massive corroboree back there. And um, it was the first, first corroboree celebration in 150 years. And he said, Joe, this is brilliant. I wouldn't have missed it. I said, this is a seat at our table. He said, we've been sitting at your table for 230 years fighting for food scraps and then you look at that you know when just that comment in itself fighting for food scraps you look at that and you look at all the money that's that that is that is pushed towards our communities to help close the gap which hasn't been closing right to help close the gap is all coming from a place of what's right for you mob rather than sitting down and asking us, how do we empower you mob?
You know, like we don't need, I've said it all the time, we don't need fixing. We just need empowerment to be able to fix ourselves. And that conversation of fighting for food scraps for 200 years, how many organizations or how much money gets pushed into our communities and then money goes to non-Indigenous organizations? It doesn't make sense. It's like the same thing for 200 years you've been trying to do. Not you, but... But me. But <laughs> been trying to do for 200 years. and It hasn't worked. Right? There's, there's millions on millions on millions of dollars going to non-Indigenous organizations. I got pulled up on the... Um, said that comment on the uh, I think it was on the drum or something one night and they said but those are specialist people in those roles Joe I was like we're dying more than ever getting locked up more than ever and dying younger and the challenge the challenge with all of it right is that that everyone's so hooked on this co-design thing why does it need to be co-design I said to an organization a few years ago they said um you know we've got money to run to run a camp i won't mention the organization because i like the people within the organization they're like oh you know we've got we've got x amount of dollars joe um to run a camp i was like sweet send it over oh what do you what do you mean by that i said well you need me to run the camp i don't need you so all of all of these monies that that is getting into non-aboriginal non organizations and the fact that like your organization's getting funded, right? Which is employing people to live their life. There's a shitload of people in Australia that are getting rich off our disadvantage. Mate, I'm talking millions that are getting rich off our disadvantage. Yet, we're still locked up. We're still dying more. We're still dying younger. Yet, a lot of these organisations are swimming in money. Like, I, I just can't see what's morally right with that. But they've all got the little brown faces with the beautiful smiles for the reports. So it's, it's a challenge with that. And, and, and some organisations get frustrated. Well, I get frustrated but organizations don't like particularly hearing it because they don't like being called out on the truth. And, and I, and also, I also, I also, uh, acknowledge that there's a hell of a lot of people trying to do the right thing and they're in, they're coming from a good place. I nearly punched on with my best mate who's a non-Aboriginal fella about, about this sort of stuff because he, because he, the reason why he, he, he has such, a passion for working with Aboriginal youth is because he grew up with me. So I get that there's a hell of a lot of people that, that are coming from a really, really good place, but I think there's better ways that we can do it. Mm. Hand the money over. Yeah. The bare minimum is like handing the money over. <laughs> at the end of the day, it's our kids' lives. Like, like a lot of these people get a new job after burning out in 12 months because it is a hard, it's a hard gig. It's a hard gig. And there's a hell, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that can just walk away. But, but our mob can't walk away. 
again, like that's our, it's not only our responsibility, it's our obligation to make sure that, to do our best for our mob. Going back to the fun, exciting, fluffy, light issue of alcoholism in Australia, you've been sober, am I right in saying it's 16 or 17 years now? Uh, 17 in December. That's exciting. Mm. Anniversary, big one. Yeah. Um, when we talk about the problem with alcoholism in Australia or just alcohol consumption in general, um, what do you think is the at the root of that issue and, and how do we overcome it as, as a culture? People trying to run away from pain. And the conversation we had a few minutes ago, where's all the pain start from? It starts in the early years. You know, we aren't drinking at that point, but we're doing things or we're coming up with things to disassociate from those pain. Right, those, those, those painful processes that we're going through. And it's not physical pain, it's discomfort, right? Discomfort around challenging environments that we're exposed to. And it may not even be what you would describe as challenging environment. It's de developmentally what is challenging for that little person's brain around the warmth, the secure needs that we need, like that we need as a baby. You know, we all human beings are wired for love and connection. Yet, this is the thing I don't understand as well, right? Is that we grow up and we have a race again, back to that conversation of race, we have a race to see, who, see whose kid can sleep by themselves the, the, the first and the longest through the night. Oh, my baby slept all by himself. What a great little kid. We rush to get our kids sleeping in a bed by themselves. Yet as adults, we sleep with someone else every night. Right, I, I was sleeping, I was talking with a sleep doctor. Um, down at, at uh, one of the universities in Melbourne. Um, and, he, and he was speaking to one of these, um, a, a culture of, uh, overseas. And he was talking about sleep and, you know, what happens when somebody wakes up at night. And, and he said, what do people do when they wake up? And, he was, and, and the community was just completely foreign to that conversation. Because they were like, what do you mean? Like, no one wakes up. And we, we just can't grasp that con concept because, well, I know me, I only sleep four and five hours a night because like I'm so wired all the time and my, you know, I'm so flat out with everything that I do. Um, we, we don't, we don't, we actually don't let our brains rest and have deep sleep. It was funny, I, I, I measured my sleep one time and, and you know, those apps on, on your phone and stuff, put under your pillow, all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and, and I thought, you know, I, I had a great sleep last night. I, I had a really, really good sleep. You check the data and it's like, I had two hours of deep sleep <laughs> and six and a half hours of like, like, like light sleep in and out of sleep, you know, like, and I thought I had a really restful night. So, um, challenges around just the way we live, 
the fast-paced world that we're in, the fact that we that we race for babies to developmentally be a, at a certain stage, um, and race for things like putting our kids to bed by themselves. I still sleep with my my almost five-year-old daughter. You know, and and if it's not me, I'm I, you know I'll sleep in her bed and and, and she'll sleep with mum. You know, um, because you look at you look at insecurities in your life, and and there's adults that are that are super insecure about sleeping alone. Now, that's all. Start, that all starts back then, when you wake up scared at night, not knowing where you are, afraid of the dark, because of the insecurities that you go through as a young person. So there, there there is so much that we can do and learn about the old ways of living that we can adapt and implement into the modern ways that we live that would just help so much with the challenges with people's well-being because that's that's what we're all that's what we're all challenged with every one of us like mental health rates are crippling you know one in three I think it is now you know struggle with different you know challenges with their well-being so um and i believe it's only going to get worse yeah out of because of the amounts of stress that has come about the last two years three years with the pandemic the impact that has on a young person's brain also the impact that has on an unborn fetus you know in in mum's belly right so um i believe that that we're a long way from seeing the i guess the the top of what it is um and people can hear and see that as daunting but the brilliant brilliant thing about the brain and i i read and listen and watch a lot of a guy called dr bruce perry um there's a there's a book by dr perry and oprah called what happened to you and it it reframes the conversation of not what's wrong with people, but what happened to people. Um, and again, you may not think about the big things that have happened to you, but it's the little nuances in how we looked at, how we treated, how we, you know, those sort of things that 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 have have big impact on our lives. Um, that book and Dr. Perry's work around how how the brain is always developing. It's malleable in what it does, so it's not stagnant. Meaning that, you know, if if I'm forty year old, which I'm not yet, close <laughs> to, but if I'm forty year old, my brain's not stopped. You know, it's constantly um, working, so I can constantly do the work to improve my brain health. Yeah, and I can constantly do the work with my with my sixteen year old daughter, who I feel will have daddy problems, not because of anything that she went went through sorry not because of anything of that's her fault because dad left at a young age yeah with her and she never had dad around so i i'm i'm super mindful that for me i'm always trying to have contact connection conversations with my young people in my corner uh, in my circle um to constantly help them feel loved and validated and seen because they're the things that 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 have big impact 
when we're a baby. You know, look at, you know, we're, we're all on our phones these days when, when young people are trying to talk to us. And I've been, I've been guilty at it. So I'm not, I'm not sitting here on a soapbox saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm perfect because, you know, um, my daughter came up to me today. And she's like, Dad, Dad, Dad. And I was, and I was like, like fiddling around with my phone. Um, she's like, Dad, oh, have a look at this, Dad. And I'm like, I'm like oh, put my phone down and, and, and actually put it down. Not just turn it over or not just put it in my pocket. Actually put it down so she can see that I put it down. Yep. So my attention is on her. I feel like that's not a conversation anyone's having about um, parents who've fucked up or who want to ha- like be honest about what they've done wrong maybe previously as a parent. Like how, I mean, I've literally never heard someone speak about parenting like that. Like are we failing to have these conversations and are we, are we lacking self-awareness generally in, in around who we are as parents? And I'm not a parent, but like that is just so transparent and accountable. Because like, we're sold the lie that kids are resilient. Right, and that, that's what we always, that's what we think. Our kids, are, they're, they're all right. They're, they're, you know, they'll be okay. Kid, kids aren't resilient. Kids, kids form uh, coping strategies to get through their tough times. And their coping strategies might be disassociating away from those uncomfortable moments, which then at 15, 16, 17 year old, what's the first thing they're going to do when they're at a party? Yeah, obliterate them disassociate from the uncomfortable feelings yep. and then we question ourselves as parents why why don't my kids have those conversations with me it's because again in the early years we've forever said shh be quiet go to your room don't cry that didn't hurt how do we know you know so also we become parents by what we see hear, and learn ourselves too Right, and we also have to acknowledge, and this isn't pointing the finger at anyone, but we also have to acknowledge that our parents did the best that they could with the tools that they knew how to as well, mm. right? And and all of us as well, every person here listening, we're only doing the best we can with the tools that we have, right? And so my me as a dad to my almost 18-year-old and 16-year-old is very different person to what I am now, to my five-year-old, an eight-year-old who lives in my house, and my 11-year-old who doesn't live in my house. I'm a very different parent, even just between that middle, that little fella who's my middle child, who's uh, Rome, I'm a very different dad even you know, from 10 years ago. I'm a very different dad from what I was three years ago because of what I've learned. You know, so um, we can't, I can't, I can't um, be too critical of my parents because uh, at all, because I felt that I was loved and looked after. Um, and I also understand that my parents did the best that they could with the tools that they knew that, that they had, you know, so we like, this isn't a blame game for anyone or, or anything like that, because Again, not a soapbox moment here. I've stuffed up numerous times as a parent with alcohol and drugs in the early years as a, at, you know, as a dad to then breakdowns and breakups in relationships to not having contact with kids and things like that, you know? So I'm constantly learning 
as a person here. And it's really easy. And this is the challenge with social media. It's really easy to, to show the world that you're a beautiful person on social media. But the little people don't care about social media. They care about your love, attention, and connection that you have with them. And even if you didn't, for those 17, 16, and 11-year-old, and, and, and my 8-year-old, even if I didn't have that in those early years, the brain still responds to it now. It just needs to respond more so to do more healing with the disconnection with those with those older ones. You know, I'm I'm probably I'm nowhere near the parent that I want to be, but I'm a hell of a lot better than the parent I used to be, right? And I only learned to do that in recent years. I'm nowhere near where I need to be, but that's just through learning and understanding my own behaviours. Right. And and the fact that I was constantly, constantly and still am to a bit constantly, constantly on my phone. Not giving attention to my kids. Was all a coping strategy as well. To disassociate from the discomfort of what I go through here, you know, so it's um, it's it's actively. Just making those decisions to do that. And I can't sit here and lie through my teeth and, teeth and say it's perfect because it ain't, right? Just today, I had to actively go, no, Joe, that text can wait. Show connection and love and attention to your five-year-old who's screaming for it right now. Not physically, but emotionally. And that has the biggest impacts on us as we grow up as adults. When we think about these coping strategies and like what those look like as they go into like the sort of late teen years and start drinking and engaging in that all that culture, how do you think that especially for young boys that like masculinity and wanting to be perceived as masculine, how do you think that impacts the men the, the mental health of young men especially and men generally? I think I think there's there's something to be said for young blokes who 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 um What's a word I can use for it? Young blokes who can't remain faithful in their relationships. And again, like that's around respect and disrespect. Um, but it's also coming from a deeper level of not just yearning for the love or attention of the, of the person that they're, that they're with. It's also yearning for the love and attention that they didn't get. So when something new comes along, it's all bright, warm and fuzzy. That we show and pay attention to that. And then these young people get into relationships and they stay in relationships so they might get a little bit bored. And then when something bright, warm and fuzzy comes along again, you know, it's it's the yearn for that. Right. So and this is this is all the stuff that you learn around around early attachment and, and things like that um, with with mums and with dads and. So you can't, you can't, I guess, talk enough to the point of understanding that stuff and just how much it, it, it impacts the development of an adult's brain from those early years. Again, it ain't a soapbox moment saying that I'm innocent and all of that because anyone who 
half knows me, know that I ain't innocent in any of that. Right, because, but all we can do is just, once you learn to be better, you can be better. Once you learn to be better and choose not to, that's ignorant. Right, so there's still, there's still challenges with, with my behaviors every day of the week, mate. That's why I said, like, I'm still learning to be a better person. That's why right back in the beginning in this conversation, who are you, Joe? I'm someone who's always learning. Learning about why I respond the way I do, why I get triggered about different things, why, you know, and, and when you can understand these things, you can, you, can, you can choose to be better. When you understand these things and continue on the path that you're on, that's not healing. You know, so when we talk about I've healed from something, I'm someone who's continuously healing. You know, just, just making adjustments to who I am and, and trying to be a better person. Not only for me now, but not for the ego of it. So I can be better. So I can be a better model to the young people in my life, particularly the boys. Because I want, I want, I want, I can't go out in, you know, and, 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 and being on podcasts like this and say that, you know, young boys have challenges with, with X, Y, Z and not model the right behaviours. You know, and that little voice in my head screaming at me right now because I don't do it, you know? Yeah. So it's about, it's about trying to make sure that, that, you're constantly on and constantly aware. And the only way that you can do that is if you don't disassociate with it by drowning yourself in alcohol and, and different substances um, that that take away the consciousness of what that is. Yeah. So that's what, that's probably one of the best things about the sobriety of me for, for a number of years. It wasn't just about taking substance out of my life. Being sober for this long especially has given access to the real me. Because the one who who was the larrikin or who was the joker, who who was was the life of the party, that weren't the real me. That was an insecure little boy looking for attention. And and I'm someone now who who's constantly learning how to how to do better and be better in these times. Final question. Can I can talk for days. <laughs> now. That's I've got. A, I've got a clock right over your shoulder, so I'm making sure we're not going too long. We're always healing. It's constantly growing. We're constantly finding out who we are, and we've got to face it, right? But then, when we get to like this idea of the enemy within, are you ever going to make good with that person or that voice? And is it a good thing that fuels growth? Like you know, explain to me the enemy within and how how you have a relationship with that now. Yeah, um, I had a conversation with someone about, you know, Joe, if you're constantly saying it's the enemy within, then it's constantly saying that it's bad and you're constantly fighting against the bad. Me and that dude get on all right now because I understand him and I talk to him every day. That little, that little voice in my head, my, my partner Courtney catches me yarning to myself all the time. <laughs> she like laughs at me. She goes, who are you talking to? Is everything all right up there? Um, because I'm, I constantly you know, nod to myself and, and have the, you know, have, full have conversations. 
to myself. Same. Not out loud, <laughs> but you know, like mine are out loud sometimes. <laughs> um, but me and him get on all right now, and maybe the next book isn't defying the enemy within. Maybe it's healing the enemy within, or the fact that it's not an enemy anymore. Like it's there. It's a reminder. And it's someone who advises me when I'm not right. Because all of these triggers, like people get people get so scared of triggers. There you go, another buzzword. You know, like people get so scared of these things that happen to us and what we're triggered by. But a, all a trigger is is an invitation. It's an invitation that there's something there that you've got to work at. And then when you understand what that something is, that's when you can do better. When you understand what that something is and you don't do better, then you're ignoring it. You know, so um, that 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 person, you know, the enemy within, um, I understand it a lot more now. I understand what it was. And I still have the conversations and it still, it still questions my existence. It still plants thoughts and plans and ideas of not being here anymore. So I can't sit here and say that it's gone and that I'm fixed because that, that constant conversation is still there. But the fact that I have the tools now to walk hand in hand with that person helps me to be a better person. So for me, it isn't constantly fighting that person anymore and running away and, 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 arguing and screaming and 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 you know having the white knuckles as far as clenching my fists around the conversations that happen inside my head now i can sit back and go oh what is that you know that that that's uncomfortable don't feel good but that just gives me another invitation to do the work on something that needs to be fixed that's lovely <laughs> thank you so much for coming on and chatting it's actually probably the best interview i've ever done so thank Ooh. you very much for being here but don't say this is the best podcast you've ever done no nah, it's um it's, it's I, fifth actually <laughs> you know what i i just love having conversations yeah and i can get like it's it's a challenge sometimes because because like you can't you i'm i'm pretty deep and i'm i'm, I'm wired differently and you can't have these conversations with people because they go, oh, well, Joe, that's just a bit deep. I'm just out here just, you know, trying to enjoy my day. Um, and you go, and, but, but, but when somebody, I, I just, I just enjoy having good conversations with people and helping people to understand. Because again, like you and I can sit and, and I'm someone who's super observant super duper observant right my diagnosis is bipolar disorder right one of the symptoms of bipolar is extreme what was it again to observant be, to observant someone who's extremely observant and that makes me good at my job around suicide prevention because i can tell when someone's not right i can see when they're not right I'm sitting a meter and a half from you having a conversation with you and I can see your head doing backflips <laughs> over some of the things that we that we conversed but about. But my face today. is also not trying to hide it, <laughs> to but, be honest. But like I can see that. Yeah. And 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 that's what 
that's what I love about the work that I do because I can plant seeds with you today. And I have no doubt that you'll get conversations, questions, messages from this podcast from people. And people will reach out to me and all that sort of thing. Because that's like that's just what it's about, is helping people to understand that we all aren't we're not messed up. We're actually not. And that's what's so good about that book by Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah. And if and if you if you can't read that book or you know there's a brilliant audio version which is like a conversation between the two um or there's a there's a condensed version um which was just like an interview on youtube about what it is and it talks about the stress response and and how we react and 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 why we are the way we are um that's why that book is so brilliant because because you go like i'm sitting here for years going oh, what's wrong with me i'm nuts you know, and everyone, everyone frames, like that's the stigma about mental health, right? Is that we're all, we all believe that we're something, like some sort of a label. And we take on that as an identity sometimes. Um, so it's, it's important to have these conversations. It's important to educate people about the reality of what it is. But it's also important to, to make friendships. Because human beings, I've said it a few times now, are born into this world from love. We're born, we, we come from love, we're born into love. Yet throughout our life, we lose love, right? Human beings are wired for love and connection. We need to build more love and connection to heal our world. Full credit to The Boys is a limited series podcast by Cheek Media Co. Follow us on Instagram at cheekmedia.co or visit our website, cheekmedia.com.au. 